Amen. So come and see. Well, if you've ever read the first six or seven books of the Old Testament, you've probably noticed that the Old Testament sometimes is kind of violent. Have you noticed that? Especially those first six or seven books. You you get to uh, the book of Genesis, the very first book, and you find that God at times is wiping out and obliterating entire cities of people. Uh, You get over to Leviticus. Just in chapter 1 of Leviticus, you find God giving very explicit instructions about how to slaughter lambs and how to slaughter young bulls and goats in sacrifice there at the tabernacle. You get over to the book of Judges. I don't want to even share this morning some of the specific violent things that happen in the book of Judges. Well, anyways, uh, there was a certain Sunday school class years ago, and a, a teacher was taking her class through the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and talking about how the fire of God fell from heaven and destroyed those entire cities. And she asked the question that probably thousands of Sunday school teachers have asked over the years, why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And she was a little bit taken aback by the answer one of the girls gave. She said, guess what? She said this, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah by fire because God hadn't yet become a Christian. Well, that answer is kind of cute. (laughs) I think it's a funny answer, but it's a little misguided, huh? Many Christians have this idea as they look at the Old Testament, God was some violent, vindictive God. And, and then somewhere along the way, maybe in Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament, uh, God meets Jesus and Jesus softens up God a bit and kind of roughs, uh, takes some of those rough edges and smooths them out just a, just a tad. And so some people think that God actually changes between the Old and New Testament. And what we've already been seeing here in John chapter 1 is that's the furthest thing from the truth. You see, John chapter 1, verse 1, we tackled this last week. Read this verse with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Matthew's gospel account, Matthew early on records for us Jesus' genealogy, taking us all the way back to the father of the Jewish nation, Father Abraham. And Matthew does this. He takes Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Abraham to prove that Jesus is actually the king of the Jews. We get over to the Gospel of Luke. Luke takes Jesus' genealogy back even further. Luke takes it all the way back to the very first human man, Adam, very first human being. And so he takes it all the way back to Adam to show that Jesus is the son of man. But John takes it to a whole new level. He doesn't just take Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham or even back to Adam. He takes it back much further. In Genesis 1-1, the very first verse in the Bible, we read, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And in John 1 verse 1, John tells us that in the very beginning, there in Genesis 1-1, Jesus Christ was there. Can I get an amen? He was there in the very beginning. He existed before the beginning, both with God and as God, which means that Jesus Christ is exactly like the Father in every possible way. So if you want to know what God is like, just look at, you got it, right? If you want to know what God is like, just look at Jesus. God's word tells us in Hebrews 1 verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So how might we respond to that little girl who thinks that God became a Christian in the New Testament? 
Well, we might respond this way. According to John 1, 1, God has always been a Christian. Amen? He's always been a Christian. God the Father was, is, and always will be just like Jesus. Say those three words with me. Just like Jesus. Tell the person next to you. Just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. Throughout all eternity, there has been the closest, most intimate connection between God the Father and God the Son. That means that no one can tell us what God is like, what God's will is for our lives, and what God's heart and mind are like as well as Jesus can. No one in the universe knows the Father as well as Jesus knows the Father. No one in the universe can reveal God the Father as well as Jesus can reveal the Father. So if you truly want to get to know God better, there's no way around it. You've got to get to know Jesus better. And I'm so glad that we're doing that together this year at Impact, getting to know Jesus Christ better. Because you get to know Jesus better, you get to know, you get to know God better. Amen? Amen? All right. Well, we're in John chapter 1. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. John 1, beginning in verse 2. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. We can stop there for now. And so you look at verses 2 and 3 here. These are pretty interesting, very important verses. In verse 3, I think the verse is very clear. If you look at that in your Bibles again, verse 3. But I want to share with you a few other English translations just so we make sure that truth really sinks in. The good news puts verse 3 this way. Through him, God made all things, not one thing in all creation was made without him. That's pretty well said, don't you think? How about the Living Bible? It says it this way. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that he didn't make. The message says it this way. Everything was created through him. Nothing, not one thing, came into being without him. I think that's pretty clear, wouldn't you say? But if you look at a very literal translation of this verse, I want to share that with you, not because it's more readable in English. It really isn't. If you look at a literal translation, I would never structure a sentence this way in English. It's just a little garbled. But I'm doing this for a reason. I want you to notice something as you translate this literally that we can sometimes miss in some of the other English translations. Here's a literal translation of verse 3. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being which has come into being. You notice something there? Three different times John uses in this one little verse that phrase, come into being. Three times. And that's no accident. John is being intentional, isn't he? Listen to how Chuck Swindoll explains why John does this three times in this little verse. Swindoll writes, anything that came into being had a beginning. At one point it did not exist and then it began to exist. John takes us back to eternity past, far beyond Genesis 1-1, to say that the Son of God was already existing as not created. He brought everything else that exists into being. Why is that so important? 
because false teachers starting in John's day and persisting even now claim that Jesus Christ is not God. They claim that he's not co-equal, not co-eternal, or coexistent with the Father in eternity past. That's a claim made in John's day, and it's a claim made by many today. So everything that exists in the universe, would you agree, can be placed into one or two categories? Everything in the universe, no matter what you think of in the universe, it can be in one of two categories. Either it is the creator or it is the created. Wouldn't you agree? Those are the only two categories, creator or created. Anything not created is eternal, right? If it has no beginning, it must be eternal. If it doesn't have a beginning, it's just always been. It was never created. It must have always existed. And whoever in the universe is not created must therefore logically be the creator. Because nothing can be created without a creator. Amen? Amen. And the creator is by definition God. It's one of the most distinguishable characteristics about God. He is the creator. Last week, I mentioned to you that the Jehovah's Witnesses intentionally have mistranslated John 1, verse 1. If you go to the Jehovah's Witness mistranslation, they call it the New World Translation. They say John 1 says this. They say in John 1, 1, God is saying, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. A God with a little g in God. And so they intentionally mistranslate the last part of verse 1. But they, for some reason, missed verse 3. <laughs> because verse 3 proves their interpretation and translation of verse 1 wrong. Because you go to the New World Translation, and here's how the Jehovah's Witnesses translate verse 3. All things came into existence through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into existence. Let me read that one more time. This is right out of the cult's translation of verse 3 of John 1. All things came into existence through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into existence. It kind of brings up a, a couple natural questions. What part of all things don't they understand? What part of all things don't they? If, if all things came into existence through Jesus, and then the second part of that verse, apart from him, not even one thing, not even one thing came into existence, then logically, Jesus must be the creator. Jesus must be God. Logically, there's no other option. If Jesus is eternal, as the word of God makes crystal clear, and all things are created through Jesus, he is the creator, he is therefore clearly God in the flesh. One of the greatest characteristics of God that sets him apart from all creation is the fact that he is the creator. And everyone and everything else around him is the created so John makes it crystal clear here in verse 3 of his first chapter that one of the reasons we know that Jesus is God is because Jesus is the creator. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Amen? Amen. We pick up in verse 4 here. I know I read a few of these verses for you earlier, but let's make sure they're fresh in our minds. Picking up in verse 4, let's read through verse 9 together. John writes, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light 
so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. So in verse 4, John introduces two very important words that will be used over and over again in his gospel account. The words life and the word light. Life and light. Let's start with the word life. John uses the word life 36 times in his 21 chapters of his gospel account. That's a lot of times for a word, right? He uses the word life 36 times. And I want you to think about two of the most well-known verses in the gospel of John, starting with John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's right there in John 3:16. Uh, probably the second most quoted verse in all of John would be John 14:6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So those two very well-known verses, just two of the 36 examples of life being used repeatedly in the book of John. It's a very important word. And the second word he mentions here in verse 4, also a very important word in the book of John, is the word light. Light is used 21 times. The best known verse, I would say, that has the word light in it in the Gospel of John is probably John 8, verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever is not living in me is living in darkness. And so Jesus makes that clear. He is the light of the world. He is the light of life. Now, something I hadn't really thought much about until this last week when I was preparing for this message is how much those same two words are used in the very first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis 1.1. You look at Genesis chapter 1, the whole chapter, really. You look at the whole chapter, first chapter in Genesis, and those two words are really pivotal to creation week, aren't they? Because you think about the first day of creation. If you go to Genesis 1 verse 3, it says on the first day of creation, God said, let there be... Remember that light is a key word there in Genesis. It's the very first thing God creates there on the first day of creation. You get over to day three. Remember what God creates on day three of creation? He separates the the dry earth, the land from the sea, right? And then he proceeds a little later on day three to put something on the land. What does he put on the land? Plants, trees, flowers, shrubbery, all of that. He creates vegetation there on day three. And so beginning on day three, God begins producing life, right? We get over to day five. On day five, God looks at the oceans and says, we need something teeming in the oceans. And so God creates fish, right? Creates fish there in the ocean and in the streams and in the rivers and in the lakes there on dry land. And then he says, you know, the air needs something. We need some creatures in the air. And so he creates birds. And then we get to day six. And on day six, God says, I'm going to put even more life on the land. So he creates amphibians and reptiles and, and mammals and every animal you could think of. And at the pinnacle of his creative genius, there at the end of day six, God creates man and woman, his most prized creation. He creates them in his own image. And so God there in Genesis chapter 1 is speaking light into existence. And on days 3, 5, and 6, he is filling the earth with life. And so that's pretty interesting, I think. These two words that are so important in Genesis 1, John repeats and, and talks about in the book of John how Jesus himself is both the light of the world and he is true life. He makes it clear that the word of God, Jesus Christ, not only is the creator of the universe who created light 
on the first day of creation there in Genesis 1-3. Not only the one who created physical plants and physical life on the land and in the sea and in the air. He is also the one who brings spiritual life and light. Amen? So think about how amazing Jesus Christ is. He is the physical creator, but he's also in a very real sense the spiritual creator as well. He created out of an impossibility a way for you and me to be forgiven and make it to heaven. He is a creator in more ways than you've ever imagined. That's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who we worship and we serve. Because of Jesus Christ, and only because of Jesus Christ, every Christian can say, I was dead, but now I'm alive again. I was lost, but now I'm found. The great Scottish Bible scholar William Barclay, I think, said it so well. And this quote is really, really good. I want to share it with you. It would be even better if I had a decent Scottish accent. Now, we've got Scotty up here in the front row. I wish he could stand up here and share it because their Scottish accent is amazing. But just imagine here, as this great Scottish Bible scholar, William Barclay, says these words that really apply so well to our study today. He writes, Until we accept Jesus and take him as our Savior and enthrone him as our King, we cannot be said to live at all. Those who live Christless lives exist, but they do not know what life is. Jesus is the one person who can make life worth living and in whose company death is only the prelude to fuller life. Isn't that good? If you are not living with Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of your life today, you're missing out on real, true, full life. And I guarantee if you're missing Jesus in the driver's seat, when this life here on earth comes to an end, you're missing out on eternal life that blows out of the water the best life here on earth. Jesus Christ, through death, only gives us fuller life still. In verse 5, John shares an insight that is a bit of a rarity in the Gospel of John. It's actually a a little tough to translate into English, which is really a, a rarity for the book of John. I mentioned last week that John is written in very simple Greek. And so it's easy to translate from Greek into English. This word used here in verse 5 is one of the rare exceptions in the book of John. It's the Greek word katalambanine. Katalambanine. And so what's the point of me sharing this big old long Greek word with you? Well, here's the point. This word can be translated in three different ways into English. There's not a single English word that translates it exactly from the Greek. And so if you look at a few different English translations, you'll find that they translate this word a little bit differently here in verse 5. The version I read, the NIV, translates it as understand. And so what is John saying in verse 5? Well, the NIV leans toward that translation, saying that uh, Jesus is shining his light in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it other translations translate it this way jesus shines light in the darkness but the darkness has not overcome it and then some very rare but once in a while you'll find a translation that says jesus shines his light in the darkness but the darkness has not extinguished it so which is it yes (laughs) you're right i think i go with all the above And so think about this. John is saying here in the early verses of John chapter 1, Jesus is the light of the world. Amen? Amen. And the light has shined into the darkness of wickedness and evil. The darkness has been attacked by the light, and the darkness has not understood it. 
And we find that oftentimes in the Gospel of John, Jesus is explaining that he is the Son of God, explaining that he is the way to eternal life. He's making it so plain and clear for people, and they just don't get it. We see that over and over again. The darkness has not understood it. But we also find in the book of John, darkness is attacking Jesus Christ and trying to overpower Jesus Christ, but the darkness has not overcome him, right? The darkness cannot overcome the light of Jesus Christ. And then you find on the day that Jesus is crucified, Judas Iscariot betrays Jesus after Satan fills him. And then Satan fills the Jewish leaders who call crucify him, crucify him. And they nail Jesus to a cross and then they take Jesus's dead body and they shove it in a tomb. They roll a stone in front of it and they seal it tight. And so in essence, darkness is sealing the light inside the closed and sealed tomb. But what happens on Easter morning? Light breaks forth from the tomb because the, the night, the darkness, the evil, the wickedness could not extinguish the light of Jesus Christ. And so all of them are true. The darkness has not understood Jesus. The darkness has not overcome Jesus. And the darkness has certainly not extinguished the light of Jesus Christ. Now you look at verses 6 through 9. John says a little bit here about John the Baptist. Now, in John's day, there were some religious groups that lifted John the Baptist up on a very high pedestal. In fact, some groups honored and worshipped John the Baptist more than Jesus. And even today, you may not know this, today there is a religion. It's a small religion, but there are thousands in this religion who still today look at John the Baptist as being the highest prophet who's ever lived and they honor and worship John the, John the Baptist higher than Jesus. This religion is called Mandeism. Sometimes it's called Sabianism. Before the Iraq War, most of the Sabians or Mandians here on planet Earth were located in southern Iraq. But when the Iraq War came, they were kind of dispersed outside of Iraq. So you find them in different little pockets throughout the Middle East today. But they really do worship John the Baptist more than Jesus. Well, in the latter part of the first century, when John wrote his gospel account, there were Jews and Christians being led astray by false teachers. And they were being led astray by these false teachers that claimed that the light of the world was John the Baptist. He's the light of the world, not Jesus. So interestingly... And I didn't learn this until this last week. Every single time that John, the gospel writer, mentions John the Baptist in these 21 chapters, every single time John the Baptist is mentioned, he takes John the Baptist and moves him down off of that pedestal that some of these false teachers had put him on. Every single time John makes it clear, John the Baptist should not be up here. He should be down here on ground level with the rest of us. Amen. And so John is very purposeful because there were these false teachers in his day. And I'm so glad he did that because there are still false teachers in our day. And by the way, John the Baptist never put himself up on the pedestal. It was some of his misguided followers that did that. He didn't put himself up on a high horse. Some of his followers did. In fact, in John chapter 3, I'm so glad John records this in the third chapter, some of John the Baptist's disciples start noticing that the crowds are gathering to follow Jesus and leaving John the Baptist. And so Jesus' crowd's getting bigger while John the Baptist's crowd is shrinking. And they're all upset. They're offended on John the Baptist's behalf. And they say, hey, John the Baptist, what are you going to do about it? And John the Baptist says, I'm not going to do anything about it. He must become greater. And I must become less. Jesus Christ must increase and I must decrease. So 
Fast forward 2,000 years to today. Whether it's the Virgin Mary or the Pope in the Catholic Church, whether it's Joel Osteen over at Lakewood Church, whether it's the late Charles Stanley, God bless him, all the way to 90 years old preaching the Word. How many of you loved listening to Charles Stanley? He's a faithful teacher of the Word of God. But some would have a tendency to lift Charles Stanley up on a pedestal where he doesn't belong. For others that like the, the modern worship movement, it might be Stephen Furtick over at Elevation Church. And so we have a tendency as Christians to take our leaders and lift them up on pedestals where they do not belong. John the Baptist summarizes Christianity so well. Jesus must become greater and we must become less. Jesus must increase and we must decrease. So can we all just do something that's really important? Can we stop putting religious leaders up on pedestals where they block our view of Jesus? Because that's what happens when we lift up our human leaders higher than they were ever intended to be. Inevitably, what happens is as we lift up humans, we pull Jesus down. And we don't want to be pulling Jesus down because he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And there is no other name given to men except the name of Jesus at which every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't lift up human beings. I don't care if it's me, Joel Olstein, whoever it is, do not lift us up on pedestals because we end up blocking your view of Jesus. And we never, ever want to be doing that. Well, let's pick up in verse 10. And let's finish our passage today by looking at verses 10 through 13 here in John chapter 1. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Isn't that good? Verses 10 and 11 are two of the saddest verses in John. After establishing the fact that Jesus is God and he is the creator of the universe, after making it clear that Jesus is the one who shined light in the darkness, created all life on earth and breathed the breath of life into every human being, John tells us that Jesus' own creation didn't even recognize him. His own creation didn't even receive him. Isn't that sad? The New Living Translation says it this way. Verses 10 and 11. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. Because Jesus is one with God the Father, it wasn't just God the Father who chose Israel to be his chosen nation. It was also Jesus Christ. Amen? The Son of God was every bit as much involved with choosing the nation of Israel to be God's people than God the Father was. Jesus was intimately involved with that decision. And so I like how the New Living Translation in the second half of the verse points out that Jesus' own people, in other words, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, even they did not, re- did not recognize Jesus. Even they rejected Jesus Christ. According to verses 12 and 13, there is still hope. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. 
Isn't that good news? That is such good news. Some of the saddest verses are verses 10 and 11. But some of the most hope-filled verses are verses 12 and 13. Most people didn't recognize him. Most people didn't embrace him. Even today, most people reject Jesus Christ. But to those who choose to accept him, he is given the right to become children of God. Well, I want to share with you three life lessons that I think we can pull from this great passage today. God's word is deep, but it's also very practical. And so most weeks I like to give you some lessons at the end of the sermon. Life lesson number one, to trust in Jesus is to trust in God. To love Jesus is to love God. To obey Jesus is to obey God. So trust, love, and obey Jesus with everything you've got. Amen? There's not a lot more I could add to that. Jesus Christ is God, so he represents God the Father, and he reflects God the Father perfectly. So as you do unto Jesus, you do unto God the Father. Therefore, trust Jesus, love Jesus, obey Jesus in everything. Obey him with everything you've got, heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you want to honor God, honor Jesus. If you want to worship God, worship Jesus. If you want to please God, how many of you want to be God pleasers? If you want to please God, you got to do what? You got to please Jesus. Amen? Amen. You please Jesus. I guarantee you'll please God every single time. Life lesson number two. Until Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, you are in the dark and you're not really living. Until Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord, you are in the dark and you're not really living. Jesus is the light of man, period. He's the light of man. So, no Jesus, no light. Buddhists and Hindus and New Agers and Scientologists, they like to talk about enlightenment and that we can be enlightened through the particular religion that they espouse. But the fact is, you cannot achieve any sort of so-called enlightenment without the light of the world, right? It's like you're trying to find light in the darkness without a light switch or a flashlight or a candle. You're not going to find it. It just doesn't spontaneously come out of nowhere because I'm crossing my legs and putting my thumb and my uh, fingers together and saying, Aum, 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 now I'm going to be enlightened. If you're missing the light of the world, you're missing light. It's really as simple as that. No Jesus, no light. But this statement is equally true. No Jesus, no life. Without Jesus, you will miss your God-given calling in this life here on earth. Now, some people would say, no, that's not true. I'm, I'm not missing my God-given calling. I'm not a Christian. You know, I believe in God, but I'm not a Christian. I'm not missing my calling. I know for a, without a doubt, I know for a fact that God placed me on this earth to be a mother to my kids. Or God placed me on this earth to be a father to my children. I know that God placed me on this earth to be a teacher. God placed me on this earth to be a doctor. God placed me on this earth to be a lawyer or a plumber or electrician or whatever it might be. Ever heard someone say something like that? I just know it. This is what I am wired to do. Right? So many people who do not follow Christ say, this is what I was put on earth to do. This is what I was wired to do. And what I would ask as a follow-up question is, what is the point of doing that thing? 
that you believe God puts you on this earth to do? What is the point of being a mother to your kids? What is the point of being a father to your children? What is the point of being a doctor or a teacher or a lawyer or a plumber or electrician? What's the point of it? If the point is not Jesus Christ, then you've completely missed the point. God has wired some of you ladies to be the best darn mother your family has ever seen. But he didn't do it just so you could be a good mother. He did it to lead your kids to Jesus Christ. Same for you dads. Some of you dads look at your own father, your own grandfather, and the guys were addicts, they were drunks, they were no good men, and you drew a line in the sand and said, I'm going to change the tide in my family. I am going to be a good father to my kids. They are going to know me. They're going to spend time with me. I'm going to make them a priority. And God bless you as you've done that, fathers. But if you miss the opportunity to lead your sons and daughters to Jesus Christ, you've missed the point of why God called you to be a father. And the same goes for being a teacher. If you're not teaching your kids about Christ, if the same goes for being a lawyer or a a doctor or electrician, whatever it might be, what's the point if the point is not Jesus? Jesus is the point. You might be in the role or occupation God puts you in, but if you're not doing it with Jesus and for Jesus, you're not really living, John says. So I encourage you to start doing everything you do with Jesus. I'm not saying you have to change your occupation. You don't have to give up your kids and, well, I'm not a mom anymore. I'm not a dad anymore. No, I'm not saying that. You keep doing what you're doing, but change the point of it all. You start doing what God puts you on this earth to do for and with Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, it'll transform everything. In everything you do, In every role that you fill, he must become greater and you must become less. He must increase and you and I must decrease. Finally, life lesson number three. You were physically born of a woman, but if you want to be a child of God, Jesus tells you plainly, you must be spiritually born of God. It's popular for people to say, we are all children of God. Ever heard someone say that? We're all children of God. And the Bible answers back, no, you're not. The Bible actually teaches that that is the furthest thing from the truth. The Bible makes it clear in Genesis 1 that we're all creations of God. That's true. We're all created by God. He's the creator. We are the created. We are creations of God, but we are certainly not all children of God. Because the Bible makes it clear that we are his enemies because of our sin and rebellion. We've all turned our backs on God. We've, in essence, done what the prodigal son did. We've turned our backs on God, our creator, and said, I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with your family. I'm going to do it my way from now on. Forget you, God. I'm on my own. But Jesus Christ came to bring us back to be where God created us to be in the first place, in the family of God. I want to tell you plainly and simply today, if Jesus Christ is not the Lord of your life, if he is not your Savior and your Lord, you are not a child of God. Because God doesn't force his fatherhood on anyone. We have to choose Jesus Christ. Jesus will tell the great Jewish teacher Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Unless he is born again. I heard the story years ago. Many of you have probably heard this as well. About a little boy. That one day he decided to set out 
to make the best darn little boat any kid had ever made. And he gets out his little set of chisels his dad had given him, and he begins to chisel the wood, and he makes this beautiful little boat, and he sands it very smooth, and then he puts on the mast, and he gets out the two-tone paint, and he paints it perfectly, and he stood back, and he adored this little boat, and it was perfect. And he knew it would float. And so he takes it out to the local stream, and he puts it on the stream, and lo and behold, it floated just like he knew it would. And he's just standing back admiring the little boat as it's floating. And after a few seconds, the wind kicks up, and the boat starts to blow downstream a little faster than he anticipated. The little boy jumps in the stream a little further and chases after it, but the wind was too strong, and the boat disappeared into the distance downstream. And the little boy was devastated. Well, a couple weeks later, he was in their small town, and he looked in the window of the general store, and he saw a boat that looked just like his. And so he went inside, and he picked it up off the display rack, and he looked over it back and forth, and he knew that was his boat. It had the distinguishing marks of the little boat he made. He knew it was his. So he told the store clerk that that was his boat and how he'd lost it down the stream, and the store clerk said, I'm sorry, a man came in the other day and sold it to me. If you want it, you'll have to buy it little boy put it back in the display rack and he went home and he started mowing lawns and he started taking out the trash and trimming bushes and talking to all the neighbors and getting as many side jobs as he could. And after two or three weeks, he earned enough money to go back into that store and buy that little boat. And as he walked out of that store holding that little boat in his hands, he looked at it and he said this, you were mine the first time because I made you, but you're now mine the second time because I purchased you. And doesn't that describe Jesus Christ? You were unquestionably his the first time because he knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You may look in the mirror and not like what you see, but Jesus thinks he made you just perfect. You were his the first time because he made you. But the question is, are you going to be his the second time? By choosing to allow him to purchase you with his own blood, He died for you so you could truly become a child of God. You were his the first time because he made you. He wants to be yours the second time. And you to be his because you ask him into your life and you allow him to purchase you with his blood. Lord Jesus, we come to you thanking you for the privilege of being yours. And Lord, my heart aches for anyone who might be here right now in person or anyone who may be watching our broadcast, Lord, our live stream. Anyone, Lord, who isn't sure about their relationship with you because they've never made a clear decision to accept you as their Savior and Lord. I just want to pray for them right now that in this very moment they would say, Lord Jesus, I'm done being in charge of my own life. I have sinned against you, and I realize I'm not in your family. I'm not a child of God, and that's my own doing. I've sinned against you. I've turned my back on you. But I make the decision right now to choose you, Lord Jesus, to be my Savior and my Lord. Please forgive me for my sin. Please wash my sin away and help me to live for you with you in the driver's seat of my life from this point forward. I want to become a child of God. I want to become a child of God. And those of us, Lord, who have already made that decision to accept you, 
Those of us who are already children of God, we've believed in you. We've repented of our sin. We've been baptized and begun following you with our lives. Lord, I pray for each of us who are struggling right now. That we would stop living as outcasts. That we would stop living in rebellion like the prodigal son. But like the prodigal son that we would come home to you. Say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me once again. I've messed up and I want to follow you with all my heart beginning today. I want to love you and serve you and worship you. Because you are the very son of God. My Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen. We go into our time of communion. I encourage you to take out your bread and your juice. We did get the better communion cups in this week. So these are a little bit different. I recommend having the juice on top and simply opening the flap underneath and the cracker will fall out. If it falls on the floor, you missed. And just make sure you keep the juice upright as you peel back that little tab on top to get the juice. Here at Impact, we practice open communion, which is just a fancy way of saying if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you can take communion with us. If you didn't get it on the way in, Adam's got some extras there. He can get it to you. If you're just checking out this whole Jesus thing, you don't know if you're a Christian yet or not, and you just prefer not to take, that's okay. No one's going to stare at you. There's no embarrassment here. But if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ and would like to take with us, we're going to take of the bread that reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us. He worked hard to pay the price to buy our forgiveness and to pay the price of hell that our sins deserved. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your body that was given for us. Let's take and eat. Let's do this in remembrance of him. And as Jesus took the juice, it represents his blood It was poured out on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Communion is always a wonderful time to go to him silently and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me for what I said to my mother-in-law last week. I, I shouldn't have said that. Forgive me for what I did at work. I lost my temper. Forgive me how I treated my mom. You say that I'm supposed to honor my father and mother, but I disrespected them. I dishonored them. Please forgive me for that. This is a good time to confess that sin. And pray that the blood of Christ would cover you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's take of the juice. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we celebrate your death on the cross for us. Thank you for making us yours the first time by creating us and making us yours the second time by purchasing us and paying the price so that we wouldn't have to go to hell someday. You purchased us so that we can go to heaven where there is no more pain or sorrow. And Lord Jesus, in the meantime, while we're living here on earth, I pray that we would live this life that you've set apart for us to its fullest. May we live life to the full as we love and serve and obey Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.